This is Adam. And this is Jim. Before we get to the episode, we just wanted to take a moment to say a few words. We recorded this episode several weeks ago, before the murder of George Floyd. We wanted to say, unequivocally, that Black Lives Matter. There is no place for racism, period. The rampant, unchecked police brutality that we continue to see carried out in our society is unacceptable and needs to end. These are not political issues, but human issues. We stand with the protesters who are putting their lives at risk in order to effect real change. We spent the last week listening, reading, and doing our best to educate ourselves to the atrocities and oppression that Black Americans and people of color have faced and continue to face in this country. There is no other side to this conversation. If you don't agree with what we've just said, there's still time for you to change who you are. If that doesn't work for you, then we think your podcast listening should be taken elsewhere. We don't want you as a listener. If you'd like to learn more, Pocket Casts has put together a great collection of podcasts about race and racism. We've been listening to several of these and suggest you do too. A link is in the show notes. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Here's the episode. Welcome to another episode of Criterion on the Couch, a podcast from two amateur film buffs as they make their way through the vast Criterion collection one title at a time, all from the comfort of the couch. I'm Adam Yerk, along with Jim Massessa. And today's episode features Bull Durham. Jim's going to take us through the official Criterion summary and specs. Former minor leaguer Ron Shelton hit a grand slam with his directorial debut, one of the most revered sports movies of all time. Durham Bulls devotee Annie Savoy, Susan Sarandon, who every year takes a new player under her wing and into her bed, has singled out the loose cannon pitching prospect Nuke Lelouch, Tim Robbins, as a big league talent with a rock-bottom maturity level. But she's unable to shake Crash Davis, Kevin Costner, the veteran catcher brought in to give Nuke some on-the-field seasoning. A breakthrough film for all three of its stars and an Oscar nominee for Shelton's highly quotable screenplay, Bull Durham is a freewheeling hymn to wisdom, experience, and America's pastime, tipping its cap to all those who grind it out for the love of the game. This movie came out in 1988. It's 108 minutes long, in color, 1.85 to 1 aspect ratio. The audio is 2.0 surround with a 5.1 surround DTS HD master audio. And if you're following along at home, this is criterion number 936. One take, Massessa. There you go. That's what Jack Warner used to call you. <laughs> uh, that's a subtle West Wing reference. Uh, yeah, so what'd you think? Had, had you seen this movie before? No, I had not. And honestly, I know we've talked about watching this a couple times now, and I think I was always confusing Bull Durham with Bullworth. Okay. The uh, 1998 movie with Warren Beatty. Okay. Which is not a sports movie. Uh, that's like a politics movie. Right. But yeah, I had never seen this before, and I didn't even realize who was in it until now. I try to go in blind if I don't know anything about the movie, and when Tim Robbins popped up, I was like, oh my god, look how young Tim Robbins is. Yeah, it is kind of funny to see how young he is. And uh, Kevin Costner was pretty young, too. He kind of looked like a young Christian Slater when he turns his head a certain way. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think they were both in their their early 30s. Like, they were only a couple years apart, even though Costner's supposed to be, like, a lot older than Robin's character in this film. Yeah. And I think Susan Sarandon was in her early 40s when she, when she did this part. 
maybe 42, 43. Yeah, in real life, she was 12 years older than Tim Robbins. Yes. Which was kind of nice because they never, I don't think they ever brought up her age in the movie. It was like she was obviously older than he was, but nobody ever said anything like, oh, you're going for an older woman or anything like right, that. Right, right. And I think the character he's playing has got to be like 21, 22. Yeah. Like he's super young. I've seen the movie a couple times. First time I saw it on Blu-ray um, and have seen the Criterion version, the quality of the, the print is really good compared to like watching it on TV or I think I have an old DVD copy of it. So definitely a huge improvement from that regard too. Yeah. And it's definitely a, a, a really good movie. I think, I mean, it's considered to be the best, if not one of the best baseball movies of all time. Huh. Uh, which, I mean, I don't know how many baseball movies you've seen. Um, yeah. Seen most um, of the, if not all of the, their like, own? <laughs> that's it. <laughs> oh, I wait. mean, I would. I w- uh, Angels in the Outfield. I saw that when I was a kid. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, Rookie of the Year, yeah, are, where the kid can good. throw the yeah, ball yeah, really yeah. fast. Henry Rowan Gardner. Yep, yep. I don't know. What other baseball movies are there? That you would have seen, maybe Little Big League. See that where the kid, um, the kid's uh, grandfather owns the Minnesota Twins, and then he dies, and he leaves the team to his son Billy. Oh no! Who then takes over as manager, and he's like in seventh, eighth grade, and then he no. manages the Minnesota Twins. I saw the Sandlot. Oh well, yeah, that's like it's one of the best. Kind of a baseball movie. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, I, I think people when people say best baseball movies, you're talking like Eight Men Out, uh, The Natural, Major League. Uh, Field of Dreams. Oh, those Major are all League. your. Uh, yeah, yeah. Does Kevin? Kevin Cosner was not in Major League. He was in. I think he's been in three baseball movies. So he's been in this. He was in Field of Dreams, which is a great movie uh, if you've never seen that before. And uh, he was in a movie called For the Love of the Game, in which he plays a pitcher, who I forget what the character's name is, but he plays for the Detroit Tigers. The movie takes place as flashbacks while he's in the process of uh, pitching a perfect game at the end of his career. Oh, I may have seen part of that. It's kind of more of like a drama slash romance film because it, it's like flashbacks in this relationships that he's had with the uh, relationship that he's had with this one woman. Yeah. For the past like couple of years. And then it's kind of culminating with this uh, perfect game. You know, I think one of the things this movie is known for is how accurate it portrays the minor league, you know, baseball system and like what it's like to be a minor leaguer. Mm-hmm. in addition to just like what it's like to be a baseball player and what i thought was really good was kind of like the internal monologue or even the things that both you see both cosmos character and robin's character kind of like talking to themselves you know when robin's is pitching and um you know cosmos up at bat kind of like that internal monologue and i've read that a lot of baseball players are like yeah that's pretty accurate to like what's going through your head when you're standing at the plate but in For the Love of the Game, it's a similar thing where he's kind of standing on the mound and he's kind of having this kind of like internal monologue or he's just kind of talking softly to himself about like what's going on and like what's going through his head. I know from what I read, um, Ron Shelton, who directed this film, uh, who uh, was a minor league baseball player, which is kind of where he got the idea. Oh. And the Durham Bulls are a real uh, minor league baseball team. Huh. Durham, North Carolina. So... Not necessarily, it's not based on a true story, but I think he pulled a lot of elements from real life, like the um, clown prince of baseball. He's a, that was a oh, real yeah. guy. Yeah, so Ron Shelton, I think that's one of the things he picked with Cosner is that um, Cosner was an, uh, was an athlete, like he pitched, he played baseball in, in high school. So from a, um, you know, actor perspective, like it looks like he's, he knows how to throw a baseball, knows how to swing a bat. I was reading some stuff earlier uh, before we started recording where uh, I talked about how Cosner would like 
want to do the plays like during filming like he would even when they when the cameras weren't rolling he didn't just as the catcher he would actually still try to throw runners out at second base nice so like you know took it took it pretty seriously but that's always what's cool with these with with a lot of sports movies is you know this one especially because there's some where you can they're just shot where they don't put the effort into it and like the baseball plays or the sports plays look really really fake or you can tell they're cutting away you know, you can tell that they really put the effort in. They're really like making a lot of these plays, which I'm sure took many, many takes to get accurate. Yeah, I saw a clip with Ron Shelton, uh, the director, that was on the Blu-ray where he talked about getting the shot of the pitcher and the catcher at the same time, which, you know, if you're watching a live baseball game, you'll see that, but you're not seeing like somebody's talking and their facial animations and trying to do that in a shot and still have it where you can tell what's going on in the bigger game, but you're still able to focus on the two actors. He said getting that kind of shot was very important to him. And I didn't really even think about it when I was watching the movie. But yeah, there's a lot of scenes like that where it's just so natural. You know, you're watching a game, but you're still really seeing these actors and you can tell what they're doing and what they're thinking. Yeah, I think that's the one thing that kind of, you know, I mean, as a movie itself, it's a good film. It really pulls you into the story. I think the writing's really, really well done. The dialogue is some of the best you can get. I think that's what makes a good sports movie, too, is that it's quotable. Yeah. Some of the other really good uh, baseball movies, like, I mean, Major League is like that. That's uh, very much more of a kind of like a slapstick comedy. Right, right. But it's still full of like really, really good moments like that where they're kind of, you know, poking fun, a little bit more poking fun at the game. I think this one's a little bit, at times, kind of like harsh. I think there's, you know, skipping ahead a little bit, but the scenes in wit and the two scenes uh, first scene was when the one player gets cut you know released from his contract and then later on yeah the same conversations happens with um with crash davis you know i mean that's like pretty you know realistic there's actually um speaking of little big league which we were talking about earlier there's a really good scene in that film where um you know again you have this eighth grader who's managing baseball teams and he gets down to this point where they're later in the season and he has to i think he cuts the player or he trades him think he cuts him and um you know he's a the guy's a more veteran player kind of started becoming a little bit of like a not a father figure but like you know friends with the kid yeah and then he, he cuts him and he's just kind of like he's like oh well i if, if it makes you feel any better like so and so while my friend wanted to trade your baseball card for like you know i don't know like i don't know uh, s- for somebody and, and i wouldn't do it and he's like oh well thanks i'll go home and tell my kids that when i don't have any money to feed him and he just like <laughs> slams the door and walks out but I think it's like sort of that reality that it's a it's a business, you know, like you think about the whole reason why Crash Davis is there was they wanted him, you know, he loses out on his potential opportunity to go to the show, go to the major leagues, basically because the club wanted a, a veteran catcher to go help their star pitcher. Yeah. He's just a utility. The second that um the nuke is gone, they don't need Crash Davis anymore. Like he served his purpose. Doesn't matter how good of a player he is. Like that's kind of the minor league system is like, if you're a really good player, you're not in the minor leagues for that long. You you kind of get your opportunity to and get called up. Um, you know, I grew up in uh, Reading, Pennsylvania, which has Reading Phillies, you know, one of the oldest. Yeah, the Reading Phillies have uh, been there forever. It's one of the older oldest minor league teams out there. So, you know, like I can remember as a little kid going to games. Like I saw, you know, some of the Phillies like uh, from the '90s, like Darren Dalton played for the Reading Phillies and then went on to go play, uh, had a great career for the Philadelphia Phillies. Later, uh, the the Reading Royals came in as a East Coast Hockey League team, a uh, minor league professional team. That was a farm team to the the Los Angeles Kings. 
And I saw one or two players, including um, Jonathan Quick, who was the goalie for the Los Angeles Kings when they won two Stanley Cups, won the Conn Smythe Trophy, MVP, Vesna Trophy, you know, had went on to have an amazing career, but was in Reading, you know, probably making $25,000, $30,000 a year, just trying to like get called up. So it's definitely a real grind. Like, I mean, playing for those minor league teams is not like a glamorous, really a glamorous uh, opportunity. And I think Bull Durham really nails it with like demonstrating that, like kind of that grunginess of the, like the, the bus trips and yeah. all that. Yeah. And I think you said this earlier. So this was written and directed by Ron Shelton. And he's got a lot of credits as both writer and director. He did White Men Can't Jump, Blue Chips, yep. and Tin Cup. So he's got a lot of kind of big sports movies under his belt, both as a writer and as director. I know he wrote for Blue Chips. I don't know if he directed that as well. I think he did. Yeah, I mean, those are both, you know, good, especially White Man Can't Jump. That's a pretty underrated sports movie, underrated movie in general. And it's a Jeopardy movie too, right? A Jeopardy movie? Yeah. Um, Woody Harrelson's wife, um, Rosie Perez. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's trying to get on Jeopardy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she does get on Jeopardy. And Tin Cup's a good movie. Another, another Kevin Costner. Yeah. I was trying to Google how many sports movies Kevin Costner's been in. Seems like a um, lot. He's been in a lot. I would say, like, I mean, we just talked about three baseball movies that he was in yeah he was in a movie where he was a track coach uh that was a disney movie mcfarlane usa that was a uh, movie he was in now i'm scrolling through his imdb <laughs> for the love of the game yeah yeah well like you already said field of dreams for the love of the game yeah american flyers so maybe five six he also was in a do you know the other criterion collection movie that he was in that we have we have done that we have trivia done? question for jim yeah, that we hmm. we we watched and did an episode about, and that he was in it. Um, I'm definitely not googling. Oh, that didn't work. He was in the Big Chill. He He's was. The, yeah, he his scenes were cut, but he, the only appearance oh, oh. he makes is as as is as the dead body. He's the oh, guy. He's right. the friend who killed himself. So the opening scene where the Undertaker's preparing the body—that's actually Kevin Costner laying there. So. You yeah. see his like, hairline, that's it. <laughs> I think you actually said that when we recorded that episode, too. So if anyone wants to check that out, uh, go back and listen to Criterion on the Couch, episode number two, yeah. The Big Chill. Link will be in the show notes. Back when we were on a real couch and not yes. recording remotely. <laughs> so as far as directing goes, I didn't really have anything else to say about that. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, Ron Shelton's a, good, a great director. I think bringing the his real life baseball experience yeah and also i think when you're the writer of it too it kind of makes it a little bit you know i think he had a, a very clear vision for what he was trying to achieve with that film yeah and i think pretty much got it the way he wanted it to be and really got great performances out of the actors i mean three great performances from cosner robbins and uh, um sarandon oh yeah and, and in fact i think if you were to say like who had the best performance in this film it for sure is susan sarandon I think this is a role that she's pretty well known for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to figure out why this movie was in the Criterion Collection, and I'm assuming that's one of the major reasons. Uh, so Susan Sarandon, Tim Robbins, and Kevin Costner, all three of them weren't super well known before this movie. You know, I'm sure they were known, but they didn't really have a lot of awards or breakout performances. Uh, and in this movie, you know, they were all great. 
I think this was 1988. So like two years later, Kevin Costner did Dances with Wolves. And, you know, that's really when he blew up. And then after that, he did Robin Hood and The Bodyguard. Yeah, I mean, it's it's known, um, I think in 88, it like it got a best screenplay by the New York Film Critics Circle. But I know in um, Sports Illustrated named it like the greatest sports movie of all time. So I think really that's like its, its legacy is one that it's just kind of a quirky, you know, great portrayal of what it was really like to be a minor league baseball player. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I think you really kind of have this time capsule of like three really, really good performances from actors who, you know, went on to have really, really storied careers. What were your thoughts on cinematography? Because I didn't really... So sometimes I have a hard time telling what gets credited to a cinematographer and what gets credited to the director as far as the shot goes. And uh, like a movie like this where there's not, not a lot of composed shots that are very different from any other shot. There's like a scene in a locker room or scenes in an office, but they all just kind of look like regular shots, just like you're in a regular place. To your first question, which was more of like, how do you tell the difference between what is the director doing and what's the cinematographer doing? I think it really all depends too, because different, different directors have different relationships with cinematographers. So in some cases, the director is the one maybe doing the blocking, like determining where the actors stand and, and coming up with those shots of like, I want a shot that's this. Mm-hmm. And the cinematographer then has to achieve that director's vision. Like I we kind of like, you look at it that way is the director is the one who has the vision for what the film should be. And everyone else is helping to achieve that vision. And the cinematographer is doing that visually. We talk a lot about, um, we talked a lot about cinematography when we, when we did Thief. Right. So like those, that opening shot with those street lamps and that kind of hue, that might have been Michael Mann saying, I want this look, and the cinematographer getting that and in, in the camera. So really, I think like in some movies, like good cinematography just kind of like gets out of the way and you don't really notice it. And I don't think this is a movie where someone goes like, who's the cinematographer for this? It's not really like... yeah. And, and a lot of times it's funny because you see, you know, like uh, Roger Deakins is a really famous cinematographer who's done, you know, won a, a bunch of different Academy Awards, but then has done movies where you're like, oh, really? He did that movie? Like, I didn't really notice anything about it. But I think that's kind of the sign of a good cinematographer in a way, too. Like, I mean, the movie's well lit. There's not like really bad areas of like where you can't really see what's going on. And those areas where you can say like everything was kind of like naturally captured the different like candle lighting and stuff like that the baseball stadium it's kind of one of those things where there's not a lot of opportunity to have these like sunset shots and stuff like that yeah kind of like the the gold that a, a cinematographer would love to do but still i think there's a lot of good stuff within the film but yeah i actually don't even know who is the cinema who was the cinematographer for this well bobby Byrne, b-y-r-n-e was listed as the director of photography. Okay. And he was really the only person listed as far as cinematography goes. Yeah, that's the, the director, of, director of photography is the cinematographer. But he worked on um, 16 Candles prior to this movie. Okay. And then afterwards, for several seasons, he was the cinematographer for Mad About You on NBC. But otherwise, I didn't really notice anything that jumped out at me. I felt like the movie in general just had that kind of late 80s, 90s look to it. Something like Forrest Gump or like Fried Green Tomatoes. Yeah. A very similar feel. T- 
to me, the whole vibe of the movie, because obviously it took, it took place in the 80s, but to me, it very much felt like in the like mid to late 70s for some reason. It was just the whole vibe of the film. Yeah. To me, kind of had that. Well, uh, they were in North Carolina, and it seemed like even the clothing that the people in the crowd were wearing, or like Susan Sarandon's house, like everything was just a little dated. Even for 1988, it seemed a little dated. Susan Sarandon's using a record player to listen to music. And her kitchen looked pretty dated, like the linoleum floor and the older appliances. Yeah. And speaking of the record player, there was a lot of music in this movie. Yeah, it was. That kind of reminded me of The Big Chill, too. You know, there was some original instrumental music for this movie, uh, which was mostly like kind of banjo-y, folksy, guitar, harmonica stuff. But then there were also a lot of modern to the time pop songs that people probably knew yeah i think the first one was rock around the clock prominently featured in um the karate kid part two (laughs) there was a song by the smithereens called only a memory playing in the bar when they go to that first bar scene. They actually played a couple songs at the bar. So they played that, then there was Born to be Bad by George Thorogood and the Destroyers. I Idolize You by Ike and Tina Turner. If you want some loving, yes, yes, that I'll give to you. Yes, yes, to you. If you want some hugging, yes, baby, yes. I can hug from too. Yes, yes, oh, wow. And then there was a song playing that I didn't recognize. I had to go to Shazam for this one. Um, it was Middle of Nowhere by House of Shock. Hmm. Shook. Shock? Don't know it. Later on, that same song is playing while they're in the locker room. And it doesn't go from one scene to the other. It's just like they reused that song. It's in the background. I don't know if that was a budgetary thing or on purpose. Then later, when they're at Annie's house, she's playing her record player and she's playing La Vie and Rose by Edith mm-hmm. Piaf. Yeah. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Later, they're back at Annie's house, and she's playing another one of Edith's songs, and I'm not going to pronounce this one right either. Uh, something like Non Je Ne Regret Rien. Close enough. 
I had one semester of French and I did not do well. I think that was playing in the scene towards the end where Ebby brings his dad to Annie's house to introduce them. Yeah. Uh, what else? Later, there's a scene where Ebby is on the bus. All the players are on the bus and Ebby is playing an acoustic guitar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I couldn't tell what he was trying to play at first. I, I thought it was Try a Little Tenderness. Young girls that do get woolly Cause of all the stress Yeah When they get woolly Try a little Then later on in the movie, that song is playing, the actual song, not him just butchering it. Young girls, they do get weird, wearing that same old shaggy dress, yeah, yeah. But when she gets weird, try a little tenderness. There's a song called 60 Minute Man by Billy Ward and the Dominoes. Centerfield by John Fogarty. Oh, yeah. Which I felt like that one fit pretty well. It's a ba baseball, yeah. <laughs> oh, put me in cold. I'm ready to play today. Put me in cold. I'm ready to play today. Look at me. When Will I Be Loved by the Everly Brothers. I Got Loaded by Los Lobos. And then two musical references, which I thought were kind of funny, uh, were that Ebby wears an Iron Maiden shirt. Oh yeah, that was good. I like that. That was funny. In one scene, and later... He's wearing a uh, Motley Crue shirt, and he's interviewed at one point towards the end of the movie, and he references Motley Crue like a line of theirs, and he's not wearing the shirt anymore. So I thought that was a nice touch because it's like, okay, you kind of think he's uh, into metal music because he's wearing the shirt earlier on, and then he actually references it later. So like, yeah, this guy likes metal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that was kind of a cool, um, cool part of the movie. Uh, having that good soundtrack is always kind of nice. I think, I mean, like, The Big Chill was known for that, just but it was kind of also identified by having, like, all those songs from that time. Yeah. I did like that um, you kind of had all of that music, and it, and it kind of played into, like, the stadium feel and, and certain points. And, of course, it's, I mean, almost every sports movie, you have some sort of, like, musical montage of some kind. <laughs> yes. With, the, with center field kind of did serve that for this film. But I did like that Annie had all of those... You know, she had all of that, like, that older kind of uh, record player. In some cases, it looked like she was even playing, like, 78s, <laughs> which are really, <laughs> yeah. really old. Um, yeah. But that kind of, like, kept her in that kind of, like, old soul feel, you know? Mm -hmm. Which, as a character, is just kind of this, this woman who just kind of follows around this baseball team, but yet is, in a way, like, really, really knows baseball. I think that's what also, like, makes her character really cool, is that she's not just this woman who's kind of, like, picking her player that she's going to sleep with for the whole year but that she's actually trying to maybe even improve them as a baseball player. She kind of takes them on as a project. Yeah. And I think that's what's interesting too, because, and what attracts her to Crash, because he's kind of like, just sees through all of her BS. And he's also kind of been around for a while. And I think she's used to these like minor league players that are here one year, gone the next. 
and he's kind of this journeyman uh, baseball player who's kind of like, yeah, okay, you know what? I'm not gonna com- try to compete with somebody else. You wanna you wanna be with him? That's fine. I'm I'm out. I did appreciate that they gave her a line that kind of sets up what her part in the movie was gonna be. She says, "I hook up with one guy a season. Usually takes me a couple weeks to pick the guy. It's kind of my own spring training. And well." You two are the most promising prospects of the season so far. So it's just like, yep, that's who she is. Um, So you're not just wondering, you know, what she's up to. She's also, she was like keeping score or something at the games. Yeah, she's keeping score. And then it looks like she's, uh, she has uh, like her friend uh, who I forget what the character's name is. Millie. Kind of keeping the, keeping track of the pitch speeds. Oh, right, right. Yeah. But she's not like officially scoring the game. Anybody can score a baseball game. Like, yeah. But when I was watching, I was like, was she part of the team or something? But then once she had that little line, I was like, oh, okay, that's her deal. I also like the line when um, Crash shows up. Who are you? Who's he? I'm the player to be named later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it works in their real life, but it works in the movie too. Like, who's this guy? Then shortly after that scene, he pulls the classic movie line. I'm too old for this shit. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the classic, uh, the classic lethal weapon. Yeah, there's got to be a montage out there. I mean, that's like the running theme of, le- of every lethal weapon movie. That's like the tagline. Right. There was one thing that kind of confused me, and I'm still not sure of it. Is Crash right-handed or left-handed? Uh, he's a switch hitter. So Crash and Ebby fight pretty early on. Like, before they really know each other, they get in a fight at the bar. You coming or not, old boy? And then they go outside. And... Crash punches him once in the face, but he uses his left hand. Mm-hmm. Actually, that scene's pretty great because first he like eggs Ebby on to throw a baseball at him because he knows Ebby can't hit anything. Right. And he's only and standing then he just like misses. 10 feet away. Yeah, he says, from what I hear, you couldn't hit water if you fell out of a f-ing boat. <laughs> yeah. I felt like that was like the sports equivalent of watching like a, a dance off in Bring It On or one of those dance movies. This was like a sports off a sports off kind of a, where they're like throwing baseballs at each other or something i don't i don't that's not really a thing jim the sports off did you just compare bull durham to what did you say to, bring, to it, bring on? it on yeah <laughs> oh, i mean man. they're basically the same that's the thing bad. that's yeah that's the best so crash punches ebby with his left hand but then he also bats left-handed the first time he bats but then when he's in a batting cage with Annie, he's hitting right-handed. Mm-hmm. And later, he also bats right-handed. He's a switch hitter. That's a thing. But then there's a scene where Ebby punches Crash. They get in another fight at a different bar. They're, like, playing pool, and then they get in, like, a real fight. So Ebby punches Crash, and Crash says, Hans, you hit me with your right hand, and you hit me with your left. My left. Good. Good. Well, you get in a fight with a drunk, you don't hit him with your pitching hand. So I'm like, well, which hand is he? Because he's punching with his left hand, but he's he catches He catches left, so he catches with his left hand and throws with his right hand. So that's why he punched with his left hand, because he wasn't going to punch with his throwing hand. I don't think they ever referenced him being um, a switch hitter or anything like that. Uh, I think they do. Don't do they, they refer to him as a switch hitting witch? Oh, maybe. But yeah, so he's a switch hitter, so he just, you know, depending on um, what hand the pitcher is, he'll switch sides of the plate to hit that opposite hand because it makes it more challenging for the pitcher, easier for the batter if they're hitting opposite hands. I think I think I explained that correctly. 
But yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good scene when he just he hands him the baseball and he just throws it and it just, you know, smashes the window behind him. The kid has a million dollar arm and yet he can't literally hit a guy standing right in front of him. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, it was a similar similar kind of um, picture in uh, in the film Major League where he's like he could throw really 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 fast, but like his accuracy is terrible. In that film, it's because Charlie Sheen's character can't see well, so he ends up getting glasses. In this film, it's really just because he's all up in his head, yeah, and he's thinking too much. And I think that's also kind of a great aspect of this film from a sports perspective, is because you know that's what hangs up a lot of professional athletes is they get you know, they always talk about like, don't think too much, don't think too much. They get caught up in their head and they think too much about the game instead of just playing it. And I think that's where you bring in Crash Davis and he's kind of able to play that, not just a catcher, like he's playing that role where he's also being like a psychiatrist to him. Yeah. He's, and he's not just teaching him how to play the game, but also how to be a professional at the same time. You know, I've heard a lot of interviews with athletes and I think one of the things they say the most is, uh, they talk a lot about instances in which they've, have like a mentor or someone will ask them about like, oh yeah, you got to play with so-and-so, you know, who maybe had like a Hall of Fame career. And it was like, oh yeah, but I, what I really appreciate about my relationship with that athlete was that he really taught me how to be a professional athlete. So he kind of teaches him how to give the interviews and kind of carry himself right. and like, yeah. you know, dress and stuff like that and say like, this is your professional baseball player, act like it. Uh, and I think that goes a long way too. So it's kind of this like mentor-ish relationship they have. And I think like you see Crash is kind of, happy for nuke that he got called up to the majors but he's also at the same time kind of devastated because now you know he's like oh well Mm -hmm. i had my shot yeah i did like how they had a lot of huddles like just crash and ebby but then sometimes you know all the team would come in too there was one oh yeah like at at the mound yeah that that one at the mound where they're having the whole conversation and the coach comes up what the hell's going on out here well nuke's scared because his eyelids are jammed and his old man's here we need a live, was it a live rooster? We need a live rooster to take the curse off Jose's glove, and nobody seems to know what to get Millie or Jimmy for their wedding present. And I thought it was actually pretty funny, too. Like, the movie itself is very funny, but there's there's several times when Ebby is just annoying Crash, and he's not following the signals that Crash is giving. So Crash will just turn to the batter and be like, okay, he's going to throw a fastball mm-hmm. or he's going to throw a curveball. You know, he just tells them what the next pitch is and then the guys hit home runs. Yeah. And I like the end of the film when um, Nuke is like, you told him I was throwing a curve, didn't you? And he's like, yep. <laughs> he's like, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I still haven't learned my lesson. There was a lot of little stuff too uh, for like a minor league game. Like when people hit a home run at their home field, there was like an animatronic bull. Uh, out past the stadium that would just kind of snort and stomp its feet. Yeah. And then later there was a scene where like a helicopter comes down over the field before it starts and drops a thousand dollars on the field. Yeah. And all the kids run out and try to grab the money. Uh, <laughs> it's really like going to a minor league game, all these like weird shenanigans. Well, what's funny about the bull is um that the f- they actually put that in for the film at the stadium. Oh. And the, the real Durham Bulls actually kept it. <laughs> and then brought it to the new stadium when they moved to a new stadium. Oh, nice. And the, they actually had the thing. I think to this day, if it's, still, if it's still being used, if you hit, if a batter hits it, they get a steak dinner. But if it hits the grass in front of the bull, they get a free salad. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, you know, the mascot races, I think like oh, yeah. even the dorky uh, bull mascot. And I love the scene when um, Crash has him just throw the ball right at the, <laughs> the mascot <laughs> just to kind of get the, um, you know, 
psych out that batter. batter. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like the um the guy who was announcing the games, like he announced all their games. Oh yeah. But whenever somebody would get a hit, yeah, he would like smack two sticks together or just these yeah. like, two. Yeah, I mean hammers. that's real. That's what they do. Like they've done that for a long time. You know, like ESPN does that, like adding that extra little sound effect in for the bat. Actually, I like I want to talk about that guy because he had a, a really really great like thick North Carolina accent. Yeah, he did. And just had some good like I don't know if I didn't get to look up to see if he was actually like Durham Bowl's actual like radio announcer but i kind of like that too even the um even part of that where he wasn't actually going to the road game he was getting like the calls and the plays by phone and then like broadcasting them over the radio i thought was just super funny like that that's actually how they had to do it because they couldn't maybe couldn't afford to send him on road games oh right yeah his name is um garland bunting and i think he might have actually been a, a sports announcer IMDb is a little unclear, but it would be pretty great if he was, since his last name was Bunting. Seems kind of fitting. So I think, of course, one of the famous scenes from this film is the dream that Nuke has, uh, <laughs> where he's pitching naked. Well, pitching and he's only wearing, because of course, yeah, Andy yeah. gives him the garters as a way to kind of like mess with his mind. Yeah. And then, of course, he, he eventually wears them, but like he has that kind of, you know, pitching he's, that he's pitching naked, just wearing him. Everyone's laughing at him. I feel like anytime I hear people talk about this movie or it's, or it's in some sort of like meme format, that's the image that you get from this film is Tim Robbins like pitching, pitching half naked, which I think is pretty funny. That garter was interesting because there's a scene before that where Annie's wearing the garter and Ebby is trying to take it off of her, but he just can't figure it out. He's using one hand, then he's using both hands, and he just can't figure out how to work that clasp. And then she gives it to him. Um, but later on, like almost at the end of the movie, she's wearing a garter again when Crash comes over and they start making out. And you see Crash reaches down and he just unhooks it like with one finger. And that's just like another <laughs> subtle reference to how Ebby is this like young, inexperienced guy and Crash is like this older refined gentleman who just knows what he's doing and that's really what annie is looking for yeah exactly no i think that was that scene was filled with all different types of stuff leading up to that of like it's clear from the moment he has that long rant when he first kind of Mm -hmm. you know meets her and goes and they go to their house that she's kind of just like obsessed with him but he's like i don't need you because it's not just that she finds a player to sleep with for a year she's clearly at the beginning of the movie looking for the player who's going to be her next project. Right. And the fact that Nuke is not pitching well is her opportunity to be like, oh, okay, well, I'll take him on and I will uh, make him a better pitcher. But yeah, and then you have Crash who's just been through it all. So I think that's kind of like giving her that challenge in a way. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the main back and forth of this movie is that Crash is trying to teach Ebby how to be a better player through you know, advice and coaching and sharing what he's learned with Ebby. Whereas Annie is trying to make him a better player through these weird, like, rituals that she's done with other players through the years, like withholding sex or not withholding sex or getting in his head. Yeah. So, like, Crash knows what Annie is doing to Ebby, and they end up having kind of a big fight in the middle where she storms into his apartment. Dare you tell me to stay out of my bed? You are messing with my private life. Knock, knock, you know, come in. You're confusing like, him. like, thank you. You're confusing him. You're bending his mind all out of shape. What? You're confusing him. Confusing him? 
You got him breathing out of the wrong goddamn eyelid. I think that's the other aspe- interesting aspect too, is because you have Annie and you have Crash both trying to help the same player. Like they're both there to help Nuke become a better pitcher. And Crash has his way of doing it, which is this tried and true old school baseball way of doing it. And Annie's over here with her crazy, like weird things like, oh, think about this. And it's all like your chakra. And like they talk about the different stuff that he's like, right. Oh my, his like third eye is closed or something like that. And, you know, he has all these weird things. And it's just, and I think that's where the conflict is too, is because like Crash is like, just leave me alone and leave Nuke alone and let me just do my thing. You're messing with him and putting all this other crap into his head that doesn't need to be there. Yeah, yeah. So there's a part um, that I liked where he was kind of giving him advice again. It was really that way of like, you know, you have to be, doesn't matter whether you win or lose, be cocky, be arrogant. You be cocky and arrogant, even when you're getting beat. It's a secret. Play the game with, with fear and arrogance. Yeah, and Ebby is like, yeah, fear and ignorance. You got to play this game with fear and arrogance. Fear and ignorance. Yes. <laughs> One thing that was funny where that, um, not funny, but kind of interesting was that Kevin Costner throughout the whole film, he just calls him meat. Oh, yeah. And that's just a constant way of just kind of like digging at him and digging at him like just these little chips away because he's like, why does he keep calling me meat? Like he's on the mound. Like, why does he keep calling me that? And then I think it kind of comes full circle with Abby calling him meat in that last scene. Good luck. You too. Meat. Which I think is his way of kind of acknowledging and saying, like, thanks for, for everything that he did for him. In the very last scene, I think uh, when Kevin Costner's coming back to Annie's house, he's wearing a bomber jacket, like a green bomber jacket. Mm-hmm. And according to the interview with the director, that was actually the director's bomber jacket. They just needed Crash to look cooler in that scene. So they just like, here, put this jacket on for the scene. Oh, really? That's funny. I think that those scenes with um, Crash and Annie that are towards the end there are, you know, kind of really good. I did like one of the things that was kind of funny, made me laugh, was um, when Annie's talking about, like, who she was in a previous life. Yes. I think probably with my love for four-legged creatures and hooves and everything that in another lifetime I was probably Catherine the Great or Francis of Assisi. I'm not sure which one. What do you think, honey? How come in former lifetimes, everybody's somebody famous? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) how come nobody ever says they were Joe Schmo? Because it doesn't work that way, you fool. Like, I I mean, I hadn't even thought of that, but then now I'm thinking about it. I'm like, yeah, of course. Everyone's like, I was so-and-so in a previous life. Yes, I say that all the time whenever I hear somebody talk about something like that. It's like nobody ever says, oh, yeah, my previous life, I was a nine to five office worker. I just went in, uh, did my job every day, came home, uh, watched TV, um, lived a pretty, pretty boring life. No, nobody ever says that. You know, with Crash 2 kind of in that relationship where he kind of has to move on and he still wants to play baseball. I think that was also a really good part in this film because they could have easily had it been. Not that he gets cut, but he decides to retire and he just rides off into the sunset with Annie. But instead, it's like, no, he gets released and he's going to try to keep playing somewhere and he's just kind of going around to another team. And, you know, I think that's when Annie talks about how he breaks the minor league, I think it's the home run record. And like nobody knows that he broke the record, but her just kind of goes to that. 
in a way that kind of just that sadness he's just kind of holding on to that last thing which is his the end of his minor league career he just wants to keep playing baseball yeah he had 227 home runs in the minor leagues which right yeah i don't know is that good bad i don't know uh i think i saw that somebody had that the actual records like 400 some oh wow but 247 home runs is a decent amount of home runs 227 yeah yeah but yeah i think that's another aspect of this film that really kind of gets it is that the players like he still wants to keep playing you know i think that's one of the things that a lot of professional athletes just really try to hold on to the end of their career play years after they probably shouldn't you know should have just called it quits but it's kind of like all you know if you've been playing baseball probably since you were like a little kid and then you get to play it professionally as you know once you get into high school and then college and right out of that like that's all you know you don't really want to same thing of like being in a regular job and being in a specific career path and then needing to pivot kind of move out of that career it's like what do i do next yeah overall i would say that i would probably rewatch this movie again and i'm not a fan of sports movies but i feel like this was a comedy that also happened to have sports in it and you know you said earlier that this is considered to be one of the greatest sports movies uh, which I think is strange because I felt like the sports is almost like secondary. It was more about the relationships between all of these characters and the friendships between Crash and Ebby and Annie. There's never like in other sports movies where it's all about, oh my God, are they going to win the World Series? Or they have this specific rivalry with one other team. Uh, they never really went down that road. And maybe it's because it was about minor league games uh, or minor league teams. So it didn't have this big, like, epic underdog battle uh, where they have to win everything. They did win everything, but that's not what the movie was about. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's a great sports movie. And it's considered a great sports movie because of how accurate the sports part is in the film. So, like, you have all, all these other movies, you know, like, Remember the Titans. That's about, you know, race. And the and these you know people trying to come together and the coach trying to pull everyone together, but in yeah in real life that's not how any of that actually happens, you know. Or you have like another more like slapstick movie like The Mighty Ducks, which is really a story about those kids and they don't really have like you know this lawyer trying to find redemption and make up for what he was like in a previous you know when he was a kid. But the sports part of the movie is kind of ridiculous. Like there's a lot of funny weird things that happen in that. Yeah. But in this film, I think. And we didn't get into too much detail on it, but like the grind of being a major league, a minor league baseball player. Just think about the fact that they're on that bus driving from North Carolina to like maybe like Oklahoma or Texas or something like that. And they're on this tiny little bus that probably doesn't have air conditioning. They're staying at these really crappy motels. You know, they're not making a lot of money. And just that day to day grind of like getting injured, uh, all that type of stuff that they have to deal with, I think is really kind of what cements it as that and just the the sports scenes like we talked about the kind of the narrative of like what kevin cos was saying to him you know crash davis is saying when he's at the plate just the interactions between the pitcher and the catcher the way that that type of stuff i just think all of that is what they really said like the, the film really captured what it is like that's what it's like to be on a minor league team like you could point to that and say like yeah put all the joking aside like that's what it's like to be on a, a minor league team i kind of reminds me of like a a friend of mine who was on, um, who who was uh, in the Navy and served on submarines, 
like I remember asking him once, like now that you've been on, you know, been in submarines for a while, like what movie like really, really captures what it's really like to be on a submarine? Like down periscope. And he said he does a hundred percent. He was like Crimson Tide. That's all bullshit. Like that stuff never happens. Uh, he was like, but if you watch down periscope and you put aside all of the little weird comedy bits and the kind of ludicrousness, the way they talk to each other, the way they act, like some of the things they say, there's are little tiny things in that movie that they really got the heart of like what people do when they're on a submarine. And I think that's kind of what like this movie got. Like, yeah, you have this kind of romantic story with these people and that part's really, really good. And then the baseball stuff like didn't take away from the film. Like it was realistic. It wasn't about a team like trying to win a championship. It was literally about a team just kind of coming together. And it was about a pitcher. And it's a story about a pitcher and a catcher, not about the team. You rarely see anybody else on the team. You kind of have the the one character who has like the he has like the cross and he's like blessing his bat at the one point and you have the character who gets married the baseball player who gets married on the baseball field we didn't even talk about that too oh Millie. jimmy yeah yeah he gets married like before the one game or it's just totally i mean like and i'm sure stuff like that has happened in some tiny little podunk town in like the south or the midwest like i think that just what what's really captures it like you have your big sports movies like the movie Miracle about the 1980, you know, men's U.S. Olympic team. Right. Which is known as being a really, really great sports movie, but that's about, like, an iconic moment in sports history. So, yeah, I mean, I would say, like, it's pretty tough to, you know, I'm trying to, I was trying to think through, like, are there any other sports movies? I mean, the sports movies that I would say are probably better. Like, I think Field of Dreams is an overall better film than Bull Durham. I mean, it has kind of a fantasy aspect to it, but to me, like, that's just so much more of an iconic film, and I think it's a, a really good story. Yeah. But still, like, I would, just like you said, I would, I would totally watch this again. Um, it's definitely, I think, the second or third time that I've, that I've seen it. It's a really funny movie. Yeah. And really well written, which I think also does it justice. If you like sports, particularly baseball, you'll like this movie. If you're not a huge sports fan, I think you would still enjoy this movie. Yeah, I think that's fair. All right. Well, that's it for this episode of Criterion on the Couch. You can find the show notes at criteriononthecouch.com slash bulldurham. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps our podcast be found by uh, other fans and other people who are interested in movies and the Criterion Collection. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook. On Twitter, we're at Criterion Couch. And on Instagram, we're at Criterion on the Couch. I am Adam Yurick with Jim Massessa. Thanks for listening. See you next time.